Tonight's reading is from 1 Samuel, chapter 1, verses 1 to 20. And it's found on page 271 of the Church Bibles. Samuel chapter 1 verses 1 to 20. There was a certain man from Ramathium, a Zuphite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeraham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuph, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. One, one was called Hannah and the other Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrificed to the Lord Almighty at Sholu, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of meat to his wife Peninnah and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. And because the Lord had closed her womb, Her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Elkanah, her husband, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Once, when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple. In bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord. And she made a vow, saying, O Lord Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk, and said to her, How long will you keep on getting drunk? Get rid of your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, May your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning they arose and worshipped before the Lord, and then went back to their home in Ramah. Elkanah lay with Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. And I want to begin by getting us to do a bit of an imagination game. I want you to imagine, and feel free to close your eyes or keep them open. Uh, I want you to imagine a world where people are deeply divided where they're quick to blame, 
and argue against one another. A world where people look after number one, where their first thought is, I'll do what makes me happy. A world where leaders serve themselves. Instead of helping the population they're meant to represent, they they use their political power to achieve their own ends and their own power plays. A world where the established church is largely irrelevant, where you wonder sometimes, even if its leaders believe its historic faith at all. A world where people have forgotten God. Instead, they're focused on their own comfort, their own lives. Hopefully, you're picking up that I'm now speaking about Israel in the year 1050 BC, because that's where we find ourselves at the, that was a joke, by the way. At, that's where we find ourselves at the beginning of 1 Samuel. See, in terms of timing, 1 Samuel comes right at the end of the book of Judges. And throughout the book of Judges, we get this refrain. It's on the screen behind me. Uh, verses that say this. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. See, it's put number one first. I'll do what I see fit. No reference to God. Uh, But by the end of 1 and 2 Samuel, the picture's changed completely. There is a king on the throne, uh, and he's a godly king. And the people, crucially, now know the God who called them. And 1 and 2 Samuel is about taking us from the end of Judges, when people did as they saw fit, through to that uh, more uh, wonderful picture where there's a king on the throne, The people are prosperous, and they know their Lord. And my hope is that as we look at 1 Samuel, as we're going to do in the run-up to Easter, uh, we'll see not only the echoes with our own world, hence my introduction, but also we will be encouraged as we see God work in their world and their time, we'll be encouraged that he will work in our time and our world. And this evening, in chapters 1 to 3, God begins his work, but he begins in a very surprising place. I don't know if you notice where in chapter 1, because the action is focused on this woman called Hannah. Uh, But notice what we see of Hannah. Um, We're not told a lot about her, but we are told about her suffering and her misery. We read in 1 verse 5 that the Lord had closed her womb. Hannah hoped for children of her own, but despite the many tries, uh, she never falls pregnant. And her husband takes a second wife, Panina, uh, presumably to address Hannah's um, childlessness. Uh, And Panina, to make things worse, has lots of children. And rather than Panina Panina show sympathy to Hannah, we read in 1 verse 6 that she provokes Hannah. She irritates her. You can imagine her, can't you, saying things like, oh, would you believe it? I've fallen pregnant again. Oh, sorry, that's probably insensitive to say. Or, or her saying to herself, do you know what? I've got so many children, I sometimes forget their names. Oh, sorry, that must be hard for you to hear. And so we're told that Hannah, at the end of it, in 1 verse 7, she cannot eat. She only weeps. Now, I realize there will be some in our own church family, perhaps people here tonight, who know Hannah's pain personally. 
Perhaps we would have loved children of our own, but things have not gone our way. Or perhaps we've lost children, or perhaps we would have loved a family, but the Lord has called us to a single life. And you probably know from your experience the pain of being provoked, the clumsy word, are you not having kids yet? Or the uh, announcement of a friend's pregnancy where you know you've got to be happy, but it does bring home the pain. And maybe we find ourselves like Hannah, we can only weep. If that is us, I hope you take some comfort from the fact that God has begun his story with Hannah and her pain. See, 1 Samuel is a book of kings and triumphs and victories and wars. But God doesn't start there. He starts with this one woman suffering a personal tragedy. But Hannah does one thing with her sorrow. Have a look in 1 verse 10 where she goes. She goes to the temple and we read there that in the bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord. And she made a vow to the Lord. Um, it's a bit of a confusing this, isn't it? Uh, it talks about a razor on the head. Why are you talking about razors on heads? Uh, but that was a sign of what was called a Nazarite. Uh, a Nazarite was someone set apart for the service of the Lord. Uh, think of Samson. He didn't have a haircut his whole life. Well, until the end, it didn't work out very well. Um, but, but that was the kind of picture that someone was set aside. But more crucially, notice what Hannah's doing. She's praying. Uh, 1 verse 15 puts it love in a wonderful way. that She's pouring out her soul to the Lord. And notice in 1 verse 8, we're told that she doesn't eat and she weeps. But in 1 verse 18, we're told that she now went on her way and ate something. It's a wonderful detail. And it shows us what has happened. Uh, crucially, Hannah's prayer hasn't been answered at this point. But the fact that she's poured out her soul to the Lord has changed her mood and temperament. There's often two traps I think we fall into when we find ourselves in Hannah's shoes. Uh, One is to minimize our pain and say, well, it shouldn't be hurting this much. Um, There are lots of people who have a lot of things in their lives around the world. Uh, This shouldn't hurt. But the narrative doesn't do that, does it? it? It brings out all her pain in raw detail. The other trap, secondly, is to think we're alone in our suffering. To say, God doesn't care about this little thing. Or God doesn't see me. He's too big to listen. But, but Hannah doesn't do that. She pours out her soul to the Lord. And I guess there'd be some of us here this evening who need to hear that. The Lord cares about your suffering. And he doesn't expect you to bear it alone. But it's not that just Hannah prays, but God answers her prayer. Um, We read in verse 1 verse 19 that the Lord remembered Hannah. Um, That's not that the Lord forgot Hannah. He made her, he called her. uh, but, But to remember something for God is to bring it to mind. You might remember back in Exodus that the Lord remembered his people. And this is God about to act. And he does act. He gives her a son, Samuel. In Hebrew, the word Samuel, it comes from the, the Hebrew word shahal, uh, which is to, to ask. It's the verb to ask. See, God hears Hannah's request and he answers it. He sees her misery 
and he relieves it. Now, it'd be pretty sloppy Bible teaching and pretty insensitive Bible teaching to say, well, if we pray like Hannah, this is going to happen in our lives. Of course, God can and sometimes does answer our prayers with a yes, but sometimes he says no, or sometimes he says not yet. But Hannah, I think, is not included at the beginning of this narrative to sort of say, well, if you do what she did, things are going to work out for you the way they did for her. See, Hannah's included in this narrative because her story is part of a much bigger story that we're going to go into. It's a story of the whole nation. Because the birth of Samuel isn't just God's grace to one woman. It's a sign of the grace to a whole people. I think we see this over the page in chapter 2, where we get this long prayer of Hannah's of thanksgiving. But it's very surprising as you look at this prayer, because it doesn't run as you would expect. It's not really actually about her. Uh, It starts about her situation in 2 verse 1. She says, my heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord, my horn is lifted high. Uh, The horn was an ancient symbol of strength. And for women in the ancient world, uh, having children was the sign of strength. And she said, I have now had my horn lifted high. My rival can no longer provoke me. But notice at the end, um, in 2 verse 10, uh, halfway through that verse, uh, at the end of that verse, it says, he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. See, Hannah's not talking about herself at that point. She's talking about a king. Uh, We haven't got a king at this point. A king's going to come later. but, But this is way before that event. See, Hannah here is speaking prophetically about what's going to come up in the future. See, her story points forward to the fact that God is going to transform the nation. See, in the middle, she speaks about the Lord's actions in 2 verse 6. She says, the Lord brings to death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and he raises up. And those verses are like a hinge for this whole section because Hannah's saying, look, what the Lord has done for me is what he's going to do with his whole people. See, Hannah's fruitlessness isn't just a picture of her plight, but it's a picture of the people at this time. Uh, if you look at chapter 3, verse 1, you'll see how the people find themselves. We, we read in that second half of 3, verse 1, in those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. doesn't mean that the Lord's word wasn't with them, uh, they had the word of God through Moses. Uh, but it means that no one heard it. No one took it seriously. And back over the page in chapter 2, we see why. Because in chapter 2, verse 12, great page flicking, by the way. Um, please, let me encourage you to keep doing that. At 2, verse 12, we see two characters, Eli's sons, Hophni and Phineas, And we read that they were wicked men because they had no regard for the Lord. Instead of meeting God at the tabernacle, people just met these corrupt priests. In 2 verse 13, we read that they took all the choice meat for their uh, steak dinner, uh, I guess like stealing off the collection plates. 
Uh, in 2 verse 15, we read that they would demand the fat off sacrifices, presumably to add a bit of flavor to their, uh, to their steak dinner. Uh, but, but everyone knew that that would invalidate the sacrifices. And, and classically, with abusive leaders, if they didn't get what they wanted in 2 verse 16, we're told that they would just threaten with force. And in 2 verse 22, the picture gets even more bleak. As we read, they were sleeping with the women at the tabernacle. A place people would send their daughters, expecting them to be safe, has become a hunting ground for these priests' perversions. In a room this size, there will be those of us who have known a Hophni or a Phineas. Uh, There will be spiritual leaders we've trusted, people we've respected, and we've, over time, found out that they are abusive. And if that's you, can I say that should never happen? It should never happen in God's church. I'm personally happy to talk to you about that if you're ready. I know Woody is and Caroline's here. Uh, Any of us are very happy to talk about that only if you're ready. But for those of us who experienced our own Phineas's and Hophni's, I hope 2 verse 17 is some encouragement because there we read, this sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight. The Lord sees. The Lord doesn't just dismiss what they do because they're priests. He sees, he cares about their abuses. But just as Hannah's fruitlessness is a picture of the fruitlessness of the people because of these priests, well, so God's work in Hannah's life is a picture of God's work in the people. Um, I've been thinking a bit about what's going to help us get our heads around 1 Samuel. We've got 31 chapters before Easter. Are you ready for this? 31 chapters. Uh, but I think this little tool here, um, I thought long and hard about this, um, and uh, it took me ages to put this diagram together. Actually, I did ask Ed to do it. I couldn't even do it myself. Um, but, but basically, these two arrows, I think these are going to help us through 1 Samuel. Uh, because throughout 1 Samuel, we see people who are on the up, who think they're in charge, brought low. And we see people who are humbled, who are suffering, brought high. Uh, it reflects uh, Hannah's prayer in 2 verse 6, that the Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. And here we see these arrows in actions because Hophni and Phinehas, uh, we read, um, a prophet comes in 2 verse 27, and we read there that this prophet tells them that they're no longer to be priests. In fact, no one in their family will ever serve in the tabernacle again. And not only that, Hophni and Phinehas will die on the same day. See, God does not ignore their sin forever. They thought they were on the top. They thought the Lord didn't see, but he brings them low. But at the same time, and here's the other arrow, we see Samuel. See, all through this narrative, Hophni and Phinehas go down, but Samuel rises up. So in 2 verse 17, we read that the sin of the young men was very... Uh, great in the sight of the Lord. But in 2 verse 18, we read, but Samuel was ministering before the Lord. And in 2 verse 25, halfway through there, we read that it was the Lord's will to put them to death 
But immediately afterwards, 2 verse 26, we read, The boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and with men. And in chapter 3, we meet Eli, this old man, uh, going blind, a, a kind of picture of his spiritual blindness, outside the temple, unable to control his sons. And yet we see Samuel in the temple and the Lord speaking to him. So you see the arrows, Hophni and Phinehas, the Lord brings them down. Samuel, he brings up. So that by the end of chapter 3, we read that the Lord was with Samuel. And in 3 verse 19, we see that none of his words fell to the ground. Remember, the word was rare. Now we're seeing the word come out to this nation. Now, why does that matter to us? Well, just as Hannah and her plight is a picture of the people and their plight, well, so that picture of what God did then is a picture of what he does in Jesus for us. If you were with us in December, you might feel that this prayer seems quite familiar because um, in December we looked at Mary's prayer, uh, what, um, you know, if you're into churchy things, uh, what's called the Magnificat. Um, There we read uh, in Luke chapter 1 a very similar prayer. Um, Here's uh, verse 52. This seems very familiar, I'm sure. Uh, He brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. It's almost a carbon copy of what Hannah prays at the beginning of this uh, book. And that's for good reason, because Samuel acts like a, a kind of precursor to what Jesus comes to do. See, like Hannah, Mary is a humble woman of little social status. And like Hannah, Mary trusts the Lord. And like Hannah, the Lord gives Mary a son. And like Samuel, this son goes, grows up to bring the word to a people who desperately need to hear it. But there are differences as well. Because unlike Samuel, this son was humbled. He wasn't humbled because of his pride, but he was humbled because of our pride. See, he deserved to be exalted. He deserved to rise up like Samuel, but instead the Lord brought him down to death on a cross, even though he didn't deserve it. But the reason he did that was... So he can exhort us. Because as Jesus rose from the dead, he gave us a picture of what God does to all who trust in him. That we no longer face death. We no longer face our sin. But the Lord raises us. Uh, See, Hannah's prayer in 2 verse 6, I guess, I don't know what was going through her head, but it it feels like quite an exaggerated way of speaking. The, The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. But the thing is, in Jesus, those words are literally true because we've seen it in Jesus. He literally brought death to his son and made him alive. He brought him down to the grave and raised him up. And so that through Jesus, as we as Christians look at those verses, we know those are true for us. 
that yes, the Lord will bring death, but he will make us alive. And yes, the Lord will bring us down to the grave, but he will raise us up because he has done that in his son. God exhorts Hannah in answer to her misery. God exhorts Samuel in answer to the nation's misery. And God exhorts Jesus in answer to our misery. However low we feel, however humble we feel we've been made, however conscious of our sin or how fearful we are of the next appointment or the next thing in our lives, well, we must, uh, it's helpful to remember, isn't it? That Jesus has been brought low already so that you and me never have to be. As we close, um, three things I think may be worth just taking away off the back of this passage and three things to kick around in the tea and coffee or whatever we're doing um, afterwards. Um, Number one, trust the Lord with our suffering. Now, I know that's very easy to say, but Hannah here is an example, isn't she? Because she has suffered in ways like us, and yet she pours out her heart to the Lord. And I, I don't think it's just me who finds that very difficult. To, I don't know if it's an English thing where you just think, oh, I've got to stiffen up the lip and, you know, I can't possibly bother the Lord with this. But actually, that's not what we see in Scripture. She pours out her heart. Secondly, um, remember that the Lord brings down the proud may be on top now. It may look like people are winning who shouldn't be winning. But the Lord brings down. And I don't know about you, but it's just helpful to be keep being told that. To, to put to death in my life any sense of pride. Any sense that I'm top dog. See, the Lord brings down. But thirdly, remember, the Lord lifts up. Things look bleak for Hannah. Things look really bleak for this nation at this time. And I guess as we look around the world and the challenge of being a Christian in the 21st century West, we may think, well, the Lord's given up. Things look too difficult. The circumstance is too hard. But they don't look any different to what they did in these days. And the Lord worked. Don't be governed by the circumstances we find ourselves in. Uh, But rather look to the Lord who brings down the proud and lifts up the humble. He's done that in his son. And by his spirit, he continues to do that today, in our time, in our place. Let's pray. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave And raises up. And so we pray, our Father, that you would stir our hearts in light of what we've seen in your word. So that we would have confidence, Father, that you bring that about through the Lord Jesus in our lives. If we are feeling, Father, proud, please correct us. Please gently restore us. If we are feeling, Father, the weight of our sin and the weight of our suffering, we pray that you would encourage us to look to the Lord Jesus, knowing that he will bring life. And we thank you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
and we're going to look at the couple of questions that have come in off the back of what we've heard. Um, so let's go uh, straight in to this one. How do we endure the weight of waiting on God when we feel less than rock hard? Thank you for asking this. I may be getting the wrong end of the stick, so do come and grab me afterwards if I have. Um, thank you for bringing up this topic, the weight of waiting. Um, that is a lot of the Christian life is waiting. Um, I find the most difficult thing, and I think the thing the Lord teaches me more uh, uh, over and over, is patience, waiting on the Lord, waiting for his timing. Um, it is hard. Um, just to encourage you, I think one Samuel is a book that helps with that. Um, without giving too much away, David has to wait a long time. There are other characters who have to find patience. Um, so just to encourage you to come back, and I think we'll get a clearer picture as we go through. Um, but I think just to see what Hannah does here is an encouragement, isn't it? Um, I made that point in a sermon uh, uh, um, that that um, we get this transformation from 1 verse 8, where she, she's downcast, she cannot eat, she weeps. Uh, and then in 2 verse 18, we read that she, she goes out with her face lifted up and she eats. And crucially, what changes that is not the answered prayer. It's the fact she has poured out her soul to the Lord. And it's the fact that she's taken comfort in the Lord, the fact that the Lord hears her prayer. Um, so I would say that it's not down to your circumstances. Um, in, in a sense, it's not down to you, really. It's not, you know, God doesn't expect us to be rock hard. He's rock hard. And here comfort us. So I'd encourage to, you to take strength from Hannah's example. Um, look to the Lord who's your rock. Cast, um, pour out your soul to him. And he has promised never to forsake us or leave us. He has promised to comfort us uh, by his spirit. That's great. Yeah, and, and just to flesh out, kind of pour out your soul to the Lord sounds quite abstract language. Oh, pray. There you go. Perfect. Thank you. And, and gives us almost permission to pray anything. So it's yes. not come to God as if you're sorted and complete and yes. nice ready-made prayers. But you work through the book of Psalms, prayers. Yeah. And, and they're everything. They're pouring out sorrows and sadnesses and everything. And almost funny expression, but gives us permission to do that with yeah, God yeah, who wants yeah. to hear everything yeah. from us. I, I mean, I, I mean this in the nicest possible way. Hannah must have looked a bit of a mess doing this, presumably because Eli thought she was drunk. Um, it's funny, he got more obsessed with her potentially being drunk than his sons doing what they were doing. But anyway, um, the... Yeah, and I think it's just a picture of her being very real with the Lord, and I guess that's what prayer is. I'm turning to the Lord, asking him. Yeah, Great, thank you. Let's look at the other one. Um, so you mentioned the verse in chapter 2, verse 6. Is Hannah predicting Jesus in chapter 2, verse 6? Wow, yeah, great question. Um, uh, who knows? <laughs> um, so I think I'm going to be very boring, and if you've been here at any time at St. Mary's, you, or you would have heard me say this before, but um, here's uh, the beauty of how the Old Testament works, uh, that we we see kind of mountain ranges. So remember, um, uh, remember I've sort of spoken about the mountain ranges, that as you look um, across the mountains, they all look quite close to one another, but as you get in the valleys, they're quite far apart. Uh, and so it's helpful, I think, to imagine the Old Testament as looking across different mountain ranges. Um, so Hannah, I think, is speaking um, probably first and foremost uh, about her situation, that um, she felt she um, 
I hope this isn't too sensitive to speak this way, but her childlessness, she's speaking about as, as a kind of death. And yet the Lord has given her life. So she's speaking about her own situation. Uh, but she also knows that's the character of God, that he's got the power to, to bring life out of death. So she's looking forward to the day where he's going to do that in the days of 1 Samuel. So there's the second mountain range. Uh, but then we, uh, or mountain rather, uh, but then in Jesus we see uh, that literally true as Jesus literally goes to death and is literally brought alive. So um, uh, yes and no, I think. Um, I don't know what was going through Hannah's head, but here the Holy Spirit, I guess, has inspired her and the words of this book over the centuries to point forward to the Lord Jesus. So, yes and no. Great. But more yes. Lovely. Thank you very much, Rob. That's really helpful. Thank you.